I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Tim Urban is the writer, illustrator, and co-founder of Wait But Why, a long-form, stick-figure illustrated website about almost everything, with over 600,000 subscribers. Tim's 2016 TED Talk is the third most watched of all time at nearly 66 million views, and his book, What's Our Problem?, a self-help book for societies, is an exploration of political polarization, and it comes out today. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Now, I'm going to need a little bit of runway here, but I'd like to start us off in a way I think I could only do with you as a guest. I've spent a couple of weeks preparing for this conversation. Well, I think a a better way to say that would be I've spent a portion of the last two weeks preparing for it. And I know you relate to that caveat because you've written a three-part series about procrastination on your website, Wait But Why, which definitely isn't a blog, which you may deep down be writing to distract yourself from the fact of your own mortality, which of course are your words, not mine. And your aforementioned TED Talk on procrastination is one of their most popular. Originally, my goal was to exclusively discuss your upcoming book, What's Our Problem? which is a brilliant work that's taken you six years to write, in which you both consolidate and build upon your theories around why humans are the way they are and why society works the way it works and how political polarization is born out of that. But then I started procrastinating. But it felt like a productive procrastination because I was procrastinating by reading your other work or listening to other podcasts you'd been on or by watching your TED Talk multiple times. So it felt productive because it felt related. (laughs) It, It was adjacent. But one reason that I love your work is because I feel like we think in similar ways. In so much of your writing, everything is something else. Instant gratification is a monkey. Social survival is a mammoth. A group of people working together in a productive, reasoned way is a genie. So this is all to say, Tim, that while ostensibly this conversation is about your new book, What's Our Problem? It's also about how you wrote it. At least that's what I'd like it to be how you construct your analogies, how you understand the world. Because I feel, both for myself and our listeners, exploring how you got there will help us to better understand why you got there. So let's start with the why. From the opening of your book, What's Our Problem? Quote, I picture society as a giant human, a living organism like each of us, only much bigger. Humans are supposed to mature as they age, but the giant human I live in has been getting more childish each year. Tribalism and political division are on the rise. False narratives and outlandish conspiracy theories are flourishing. Major institutions are floundering. Medieval-style public shaming is suddenly back in fashion. Trust, the critical currency of a healthy society, is disintegrating. And these trends seem to be happening in lots of societies, not just my own. So what's our problem? End quote. And I think anyone who's been on Earth long enough has spotted something amiss in the last decade, regardless of what side of the political aisle they're on. So two questions to start us off, Tim. When did you first realize something was changing? And when did you realize the problem was so pressing that you needed to dedicate about 493 pages to it? It's hard to remember exactly, but I would say 2014, maybe somewhere around there, kind of the later years of Obama's second term, you know, even just in general during like Obama's presidency, things started to get kind of nasty in Washington. And I don't know, 2014 or so, I I think it started to feel like people I knew who had always been on the same page about stuff like politics 
we're suddenly like not on the same page anymore. It was probably, I would say late 2015 or early 2016 when I hit the point where I was like, I need to write about this. And that's like a pretty high bar for me because there's a lot of things that are interesting or that are relevant that I don't write about. It has to really hit a bunch of different criteria for me to actually want to say something myself publicly about it. Um, and this isn't even my favorite topic. It's not even what I typically like to write about. It felt like necessary because I write a lot of stuff about the future and about the awesome future we could all have. And it's like it felt like that was secondary because we're not going to get a chance to have that awesome future if we don't like figure out what this trend that we seem to be on that might threaten all the other things I could write about. I wasn't planning on writing a book about it. I was planning on writing just a blog post about it. And it was one of those topics that just sucked me in as I started to ask myself, what's our problem? What is going on? What is the issue here? How can I frame it? How can I sum it up? When I wrote about Neuralink, right, which is the, you know, it's Elon Musk's uh, brain machine interface company. I don't like when people partially explain things to me. I really want to understand the roots of something. I'm actually like pretty bad at learning until I get the root and then I become really good at learning. With Neuralink, it wasn't just like, okay, let's talk about putting machines in the brain and what they can do. It was like, no, no, no. How does the brain work, right? Like how does the, okay, that's part of the nervous system. Well, how does the nervous system work? When were the first nervous systems? Like how did they evolve? How did our brain come to be? Now, how does the brain function? What, what are the different parts? How, how do we think? What do we know? What, what do we not know? And then it can start to be, okay, now how can we work with that with brain machine interfaces? So I like to go back and figure out the roots. So with this topic, why is our society this way? It was like such a, an extreme version of this where I was like, well, if we want to understand that, we have to understand polarization. We have to understand tribalism. Why do we have confirmation bias as individuals? And how can I explain those things, confirmation bias or tribalism in like a, you know, yeah, like a wait, but why way, you know? And it just, all these metaphors were popping out at me. It turns out I had a lot I wanted to say about this and I didn't quite know it yet. And rather than kind of just say, okay, well, I'm not going to get into all of that. Let me just pick the general point here and make it and move on. I started just kind of perfectionist. I was like, well, no, I want to say that. And I want to get into this and I want to get into all these things. And so it just got really big. And I ended up as a big book. It was such a challenge throughout to try to wrangle all of the different subtopics into a single kind of overarching story. That's why part of why it took so long. And it was hard and it took forever, but it's done. So that's good. A lot of the ideas that you grapple with in this book, you first began to explore in the story of us, which was a kind of an extended series of blog posts that you started back in 2019. When did you decide to make the jump from, all right, I'm just going to continue publishing more and more blog posts under the Story of Us header? And when did you realize, okay, actually, this problem is so big, going back to the first principles of human society is going to take me so much time that I need to make a book instead of a blog post? First, it was a blog post, then it was going to be a blog series because I was like, I can't publish a 100,000 word thing in one blog post. That's insane. That's a full book in a blog post. So I was like, okay, I'll do a series and I'll release it you know, every couple of weeks as chapters. And then I got to what I thought was the second to last chapter. So it was supposed to be 12 chapters, I finished 10, published them. They're currently still up. You know, the first 10 chapters, a lot of it was a framework for how to think about politics, a language that we can have these discussions. And then I was going to use the 11th chapter to apply that framework to current events. And I was like, let's discuss some of the major movements going on right now and some of the major actual fights we're having. And what does it look like through this framework? It was that chapter that just almost killed me because as I was writing it, I realized like, well, you know, if you want to do that, well, you have to explain the background of these movements and you have to really. And so it, that it ended up being that that chapter alone was going to be longer than the other 10 combined. And I said, you know what, let's just make this a book. The title of the site is Wait But Why? 
But really, if you're going to try to aim to be a first principles thinker, and we can talk a little bit about what first principles means, if you're going to aim to be that, you kind of can catch yourself in almost a recursive loop of, wait, I think I understand the technology behind Neuralink, wait, I think I understand how the mind works, wait, I think I understand how the human brain evolved from, wait, you keep catching yourself having to go back and back and back and back. And I imagine the more you think you know about the subject, all of a sudden you realize there's so much more you don't know. By your own account, the book was six years in the making. But the nice thing about doing some deep research on a guest is I can kind of take a wider view. And I'd say it's almost more like 10 years because you've used much of your research and concepts from the essays you've written during that entire period and incorporated into this book in various ways. One example that really stands out to me is from eight years ago. So January of 2015, you wrote a post titled, quote, The AI Revolution, The Road to Superintelligence. And in that essay, you write about what you called at that time DPUs or die progress units, a way to measure a length of time in which enough progress has been made that someone from the past brought into the future would die upon witnessing all of the progress that had been achieved in the interim. I'm just going to quote you real quick. Quote, so a DPU took over 100,000 years in hunter-gatherer times, but at the post-agricultural revolution rate, it only took about 12,000 years. The post-industrial revolution world has moved so quickly that a person from 1750 needs to only go forward a couple hundred years for a DPU to have happened, end quote. And this is an idea that you have folded into what's our problem, though you no longer reference DPUs specifically. You use the imagery of pages in a 1,000-page book with each page representing 250 years of human existence. And we're on page 1,000, turning to page 1,001. So what is it about the exponential rapidity of human achievement that concerns you such that it's been on your mind for at least eight years? I mean, exponential things are scary. (laughs) Like linear growth is intuitive. You know, a tree grows a little bit every year and there's a new ring every year and it gets to a certain height. And, you know, that's in nature. We understand that concept. Exponential growth is weird. We don't understand it, you know, which is why we're so bad at compound growth when it comes to investing. That's kind of a counterintuitive concept. It can totally catch us off guard when it applies to our lives or to our society. So, you know, one of the biggest exponential stories that we could have, which is the way that human progress happens. As soon as we started moving into cities together and comparing notes and, you know, knowledge could build upon knowledge. So every generation was kind of starting off on the shoulders of all the generations before it. What you end up with is knowledge grows exponentially and technology grows exponentially because a more advanced species makes faster progress than a less advanced species. It equally scares me and thrills me. Exponential progress itself Growth, a technological growth itself, these are not, it's not a good or bad thing inherently. It depends on what it's used for, right? And so what you really end up having is that good, productive technologies are growing exponentially, which is exponentially awesome. Also, bad, dangerous, scary technology is growing exponentially, which is exponentially bad. And the issue is that it doesn't matter how good the good gets. If the bad gets to a certain level, you know, it's easier to destroy than it is to to build, right? So if the bad gets to a certain level, it'll just be too easy to create mass destruction. And even if 99% of people are good and don't want that, you know, all it takes is that other 1%. And what you end up with is this kind of limiting factor on like, if the tech gets to a certain point, that means the bad, you know, scary possibilities get to a certain point. And that can mean the end for us. 
And it can kind of spiral out of control very quickly. What you don't realize with a society is how much control there is. We've built these structures and these systems where everything is super regulated and controlled. And the culture itself controls how we behave and how we interact with each other and all the rules and regulations and norms and policies. And it's all there to keep everything like as expected. When things start moving quickly, it can be chaotic and things can spiral out of control. You can lose that control. And once it happens, it can really disappear and you can then look back and realize only then how good you had it back in the days when things were under control. That's a big part of when I said I have to write about this topic, even though I don't really want to write about this topic, I have to. And it, it was because of this kind of thought. If, if a lot of the norms and culture that kind of has kept the US as a reasonably stable society for a long time, if those are starting to falter. If a bunch of um, new kind of environmental changes like social media, for example, kind of spring on us all at once, that changes behavior. And if that happens quickly, like it can have like disastrous consequences. It's not that I'm pessimistic. I actually feel a lot of optimism. I'm naturally kind of an optimist. I, I feel like it'll probably end up fine. It's just that the negative possibility, even as an optimist, I have to acknowledge it's there and it becomes very scary, that negative possibility. And so it's something that's hard not to focus on. Yeah, I mean, Wait But Why is shot through with optimism. Even as much of an Elon Musk fan as I am now, although I wish he would stay off Twitter, I did not understand the hype around why we ever needed to go to Mars beyond just a curious visit until I read your essay about why it was important to go to Mars. And you used that whole series of essays to lead us to the point to understand why it was important to get to Mars, all from an optimistic perspective. But to stay on the technology bit and why it's, I think, frightening for you. And, and and again, after reading your work now frightening for me is you spend a good amount of time explaining why, because technology is advancing at such a fast rate, it's scary because humans just can't evolve that fast. I mean, it takes humans probably hundreds of thousands of years if we wanted to grow like a new finger or millions of years, right? And yet social media just came out and then augmented reality is coming after that. And then Neuralink's going to be a chip in our brains and all this new technology, right? It's like if humankind and technology were dance partners, right? And we're dancing with technology. And you talk about how in the book, you could go thousands of years from like 10,000 BC to 9,000 BC and take a human a thousand years forward in time and not much is going to change except maybe the trees would have grown a little taller. But now if we're using that dance partner metaphor. It's like our dance partner has been learning a new move every second and been begging for us to keep up, but we're still doing the dance we did at the beginning of the night, right? So it seems like a lot of what frightens you is the incongruity between how fast or rather slow humans are evolving or not evolving, and then how much more quickly you know, the mind skittles, to use an analogy from the book, are being deployed to us. That seems to be the thing that scares you, the gap between our inability to evolve rather quickly and technology's endless ability to evolve exponentially. I think of technology as just raw power. Like the more tech we have, the more godlike our power. It's like if you go back a long time ago, just the technology to build a fence suddenly gave you power over pride of lions trying to kill you if you built a fence. Like you suddenly had more power than they did because they want something, which is to eat you. You want a different thing, which is them not to. And now you win. <laughs> you win because you have more power. And so... Put, you know, extrapolating that forward and you end up with like a species with increasingly godlike power. So that's one thing, right? And again, that power can be used for good or bad. And, and so the question is, well, who's in charge? If there's an all-powerful magic wand, you know, who do you want holding it? You want wise people holding it. You want it to be in the hands of a very wise person. 
What you don't want is for it to be in the hands of, you know, an adult who is short-sighted and can't control their temper and is super emotional and beholden to their own emotions. And, and so the question is, as the tech is growing, it's like the species, again, if you think of the species as a giant organism, which in a sense it is, how wise is that giant organism, humanity? How wise is it as it's getting this increasingly powerful magic wand? Wisdom doesn't grow exponentially. Maybe knowledge kind of in a way does, but wisdom is more cyclical. If you look at history, there are periods when, you know, sometimes it's after a catastrophe. I feel like after a war or something like that, out of the rubble emerges wise people who don't take anything about their society for granted. They feel like they have to work hard together to do the right things, to preserve things and to not let this happen again. And then things are good. Usually things become good because of why as people make them good. And then generations pass and people forget the critical lesson, which is that there's no law of nature that grants us a civilization that will continue to work. This is something that we should be incredibly grateful for and working hard together to preserve because it can go away, but we forget that it can go away. When times are good for too long, we just assume that this is just how things are. And that's when you get to less wise people. And those less wise people let things get bad. And then in the bad times, you have awful experiences and a lot of death. And then the lessons are hard earned. And then you, so that's this cycle. It's based on a different famous quote that I tweak to like, say, you know, wise people create good times and good times create foolish people. And foolish people create bad times. So it's this cyclical thing. That's what I mean when I say cycle. It's like this merry-go-round that societies go on when people who throughout history have been able to build something amazing in their civilization, you know, some amazing civilization. It usually doesn't last. And why? And it's usually not because of some natural disaster or because there's it's because they fall into decadence and they forget what brought them there and they take things for granted. Now that's just a general concept that wisdom is cyclical. Now you combine that with technology growing exponential. And so every cycle there's more tech, which means there's more power, which means that it's scarier because bad times are worse and the good times are even better. To me, you know, look, you can say a lot of people are living in bad times now and sure. But if you look at the big metrics, like, general metrics of prosperity, GDP per capita around the world, education, women's education around the world. You look at life expectancy. All of these metrics show that we are very much in in good times as far as 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 good as times can can get in the 21st century. They're partially really great times because of the technology we have. And so it gets scary that if we're on this wisdom merry-go-round, well, what happens when that swings to bad times? The 20th century was some of the absolute best times uh, along the same metrics I just mentioned. And they also had the biggest world wars and war genocides and existential threats like nuclear weapons or later on like climate change. These are historically bad things as well, also in the 20th century. So I don't want to experience 21st century bad times. 20th century bad times were unbelievably awful in the same century when other things were really unbelievably good. So I don't want 21st century bad times to happen. And getting this scared like this makes me want to not take our society for granted and work really hard to try to convince other people not to either. And just part of what I'm trying to do with this book is kind of shake people and have them be scared with me so that we can try to work together to avoid that swing down to bad times. One of the things that makes it difficult to avoid the bad times or to preserve the good times is you have this kind of, you have many evocative images in the book, but there's like a primitive mind and a higher mind. And they're kind of always fighting for control of the cockpit that is the human brain. And there's this quote that you have in the book where you say, in a lot of ways, modern humans are like modern moths. 
running on a well-intentioned primitive mind that's constantly misinterpreting the weird world we've built for ourselves, end quote. And you use this analogy of the moth bumping its head against a street lamp. How are humans like moths? Yeah, so I always wondered, like, what are moths' problem? Like, what's their ish? Why are they, like, <laughs> so obsessed with porch lights and street lights? Like, it just seems super um, boring and pointless to be doing what they're doing. And then I learned about it, and it's like, moths use moonlight for nocturnal navigation. For 99.9% of moth history, the only light at night was the moon. That's it. And so moths would use that light and go towards it, and that would somehow help with navigation. Suddenly, in this very recent time, all of these other kinds of lights start turning on at night, and moth software has not updated. So it's making, it's misfiring. It's making a mistake. It's doing the only thing it knows what to do, which is approach light. And it's now actually not achieving what it has always achieved before because there's this other thing. The environment has changed, but the software has not, right? This, the environment can change quickly, especially in exponentially growing times. And software, animal software changes very slowly. I think that's a lot of what our problem is now too. And I don't think humans are worse than we used to be. I don't think we're worse people. I think probably we're probably better people overall than the humans of the past. I think if you, you know, if you went back to 1950s, we are individually in a lot of ways wiser uh, individually. I think we're more tolerant or whatever. So I don't think this is a story of bad people. I think it's a story of a changing environment, an environment that's changing so rapidly and our software barely changes in 100,000 years. It's as if a bunch of streetlights have turned on at night and we're all running towards them now by mistake. So, so, so what are the streetlights for us? You know, what's the environmental change? Well, there's stuff like, you know, we're programmed to live in a kind of a small tribe a long time ago. And a lot of our software is geared towards, and this is what I call the primitive mind. I made a character for it. The primitive mind is just a piece of human software that has been honed over hundreds of millions of years, but then specifically towards human software over millions of years and tens of thousands of years, it gets to this very fine-tuned place. And what's it fine-tuned towards? It's software that is incredibly optimized survival software for a 20,000 BC person. And that's why we gossip. And that's why we form cliques. And that's why we uh, try to please authority. And that's why we have an instinct for hierarchy. And that's why we create us versus them modules in our head. That, and that's why we dehumanize them. And we want to protect us. And that's why we protect people that are closer related to us, our siblings and our parents and our kids more than our cousins and our cousins more than our third cousins. And all of this is very specifically there for a reason. It's all there because evolution has honed us to that. Now, what do you do when you take that exact piece of software and you put it in an advanced civilization and especially one that has stuff like social media and um, the internet and all of the modern things. And there's, you know, hundreds of millions of people in this big tribe, not 150. What happens? You know, what, that same exact software in that totally different environment creates totally different behavior. And so when I, when I see people acting really, you know, again, politically tribal and truth has just gone out the window with this kind of thing. And I see just dehumanization and uh, focusing on their political enemies over the bigger problems. All of that is just to me, that's the, the output. That is the behavioral output that happens when you put our software into this current environment. Therefore, the question is, what do we do? How do we fix that? So what we can, we can change the environment. That's one thing. And I think that's a good idea is, okay, what, you know, what can we do? How can we adjust? You know, maybe it's kids before 16 shouldn't be on social media. Maybe it's change the algorithms on social media or amplify less inflammatory type stuff. Okay. Maybe we create a credit rating agency 
type thing for the accuracy and neutrality of major media brands. And maybe suddenly the New York Times or CNN or Fox News has to actually work harder for accuracy because now there's they will get their reputation dinged in a way that currently they don't. I, I can think of a hundred of these, right? So we, okay, so that's one thing we can do is we can tweak the environment. We're not going to tweak human nature. We're not going to tweak the software, but there's also this other character in the human brain. We're not just a piece of software, unlike a moth. We have this thing I call the higher mind, which is, you know, it's all the same brain, but it's this part of a human that can see in real time, understand the world that you actually live in and make adjustments based on it. So a moth, they can't override that software and say, wait a second, we've gained some knowledge. We've learned that these streetlights are not the moon. Let's spread that and let's learn and train our young kids about that. And now we won't fly to, right? They can't do that, but we can't. So we can we can't override human nature, but we have this other part of us that can kind of override our behavior based on what we know. We can build awareness about what we're doing and why society is fragile and the kinds of behavior that puts us all in danger in the long run and things like that. I use Skittles as an example because they are specifically they are food that the primitive mind is easily tricked into believing is healthy. Just like the moths only had the moon as the light at night for almost all of their existence. Well, in almost all of our soft brain software's existence, any kind of thing that was that sweet and colorful and chewy and had that kind of chewy texture was probably a very high calorie dense fruit. And also we lived in a world most of the time when food was hard to come by and calories were precious. They were like gold. So the primitive mind wants to devour Skittles, right? Because it's just software doing the best it can to survive in 20,000 BC. But unlike moths, if we were moths, we would just all be binging on Skittles till we die, right? <laughs> the reason we don't is because we have a higher mind in there that can look and say, wait a second, holy, look, look at the ingredients here. Okay, wait, this is not healthy. This is Mars Inc. trying to trick our primitive minds into paying it money at an expense of our health. And that's why most of us are pretty disciplined about candy eating. We'll do it. We often do it more than we want to because it is a tug of war in the head between these two kind of minds. But we can override. And that's an important lesson. You know, we don't have to just be totally beholden to the environment. The same way we don't have to eat Skittles, we don't have to let social media affect us in the way it is right now. So anyway, these are the things I'm focusing on is like, I can't change the environment much myself. I can give suggestions, but rather than focus on that, I'm saying, let's assume the worst with the environment. Let's assume it continues to be shaped by these forces that don't have the long-term human society best interests in mind. And let's instead try to build awareness about what's happening so that we can do something about it. You mentioned how the primitive mind was great for when we were just wandering groups of small tribes. And I think we can use that to lead us to an idea you dropped earlier, the idea of the human organism. So to pull something from the book, quote, me against my brothers, my brothers and me against my cousins, my cousins, my brothers, and me against strangers, end quote. And another image that stuck with me long after I set down the book was that of two giant ant colonies in a knife fight. Because, <laughs> which the listener, you're, gonna, you're just going to have to see it for yourself. Because humans aren't just like moths, we're also like ants. So to take us into giants and genies and golems, how do we work in some ways like ant colonies to form the human giants that make and destroy society? Yeah. So I give, uh, you know, Jonathan Haidt a lot of credit for turning me on to these ideas and to that proverb too. He likes to talk about that. It's really, this is the concept of um, emergence. Some people don't like that term. They think it's overused or whatever, but I, I think it's quite useful. Like what emergence means is it's just this basic concept of a bunch of things combining together into something that is more than the sum of its parts. Ants are a classic example, right? An individual ant is very stupid and can't do anything on its own, can't survive on its own. 
will die immediately if you isolate it from the colony. Put it together with a full colony, and the colony itself has this intelligence that if you combine all the individual ant intelligence, you get a nothing compared to the colony's intelligence. It's almost like there's this magical new thing that's created when you combine things sometimes, right? That's, that's again, more than the sum of its parts. It's like this thing that can only exist on a higher level. And so the ant colony, I, I think of it as like an emergence tower. And so at the bottom of the tower, you've got, you just say subatomic particles, and then a, bu- a bunch of those turn into an atom and a bunch of those make a molecule. And then from there you go and make a, a cell, just say, and then the cells make a tissue and then organs and then organism. And then eventually you have, so that's the ant is on that level, the organism, the ant colony is up a level from there when you combine a bunch of organisms, right? And so you can keep going with this. And so what's interesting about humans Just like we're more complex than moths, we have the software, but we also have the higher mind. We also have an interesting way of doing emergence. Basically, an ant is like a cell in the body of an animal. That's the ant colony. That's a nice analogy. Ants can only function on that level. So the individual ant is always, you know, part of a colony, and that's all they are. They're never an individual. They're just part of a colony. A polar bear is almost never you see a pack of polar bears. Like, you know, male polar bear in the Arctic is is an individual. And they they can't really be a part of a pack. They only can be an individual. Humans are cool because we are total individuals. We evolved via individual competition and we can function as individuals. We can survive as individuals. We can independently think and all of that. We also can become part of a six-person team at work. And suddenly it's like we're in this brainstorm session and everyone's lost and, you know, in the in the collaboration. And if it's really good, no one even cares who's getting credit because it's just kind of like it was the six person brain was formed by six people. So suddenly we can go and be one sixth of a six person organism. We also can then go to a, you know, a football game and you feel like you're just one of a, of a giant crowd and you're happy to be, you don't care about, no one, you know, in the crowd is really worried about an individual attention or anything. You'll cheer at the same exact time everyone else cheers. You'll do the wave when everyone else does it. You'll, you'll high five people around you and you get into this mode where we are suddenly, oh, like kind of an ant. We're kind of like a cell in this much larger thing. And we have that capability. And sports is a nice, healthy way to bring it out. We also can bring it out in war, you know, gangs. We can bring it out in um, political protests. And everyone's holding their arms up in unison. That is, you know, ant-like behavior. And I don't say this in a negative way. Again, it can be negative or positive. The amazing societies that we've built have been the result of mass-scale cooperation. So we have special brains that are not normal animal brains. Just like we can override our own instincts, we also can create mass scale cooperation in a way that other complex animals can't. That's usually a simple animal thing. That's what bees do. That's what ants do. Uh, You don't really see very complex animals often creating giant, you know, million person collaborations. But we do it all the time. The science community around the world is a giant many million person collaboration building upon each other's things. And it's like this one super intelligent system is formed by all the scientists disproving each other's hypotheses and building upon each other's theories. And what we have is this, like, you know, I call it a genie, just like the colony is so much smarter than ants could ever be. The worldwide science community is so much smarter than any person could ever be. And the reason we know so much about the universe and about the atomic world and about all the things we know, we we know this because the giant genie that is the science community is figuring those things out. And in that giant genie 
it's like the brain of that genie is made up by the brains of millions of individuals from the past and from today. And those brains connect together like neurons in a system. And so we can form, we have the ability to, to kind of form this giant super brain. And it's amazing. The lifeblood of the scientific community genie is individual thinking. So it's the, it is specifically the fact that the individuals inside are all doing their own thing. And they're trying to disprove each other's things. They're competing. They're, they're disagreeing. And each individual is trying to prove other ones wrong. That creates super intelligence on a mass scale. There's other kinds of emerge, human emergence, which do the very opposite thing. They combine together based not on common values and disagreement, but on conformity, on uniformity, on agreement. And what are they agreeing on? Well, usually there's a kind of a sacred um, set of ideas. Uh, it can be a religious book or it can be a political dogma or it can be a lot of things. And a sacred set of ideas, membership in the club, or it can be also like an ethnic group. We, we all look the same and that's what we're going to bond together on. That's a whole different way to, for humans to form giants. And I call it a golem. It's a kind of a big, stupid, brute force human giant. And that's a great thing to take to war against another army. You know, you don't want a lot of individual thinkers in the army. You want the commanders and then you want soldiers who are just deeply patriotic and fighting for the sacred flag together and executing the mission. Uh, and that's why deserters and dissenters are often you know, executed or kicked out of the army because you, you want complete conformity. So it's because in that case, well, you're, you're not looking for super intelligence. You're looking for brute power, brute force power. And so conformity on a mass scale creates this big, scary brute force giant. Uh, and it's not super intelligence. And so when I look around the political world today, I see both of these things. I see humans combining together in really productive ways. And then I see also humans combining together in the very old school kind of scary way, which I think is much more a product of our primitive mind. I think, you know, when the primitive minds band together, they, they have an instinct to do it a certain way where suddenly, you know, disagreeing with the group, you know, not fitting in is not okay, not good. Talking shit about the others, about them, this is us versus them mindset kicks in. And that's really good. That's a way to show how loyal you are to the group and all of this. So, you know, I could talk about this forever, but basically, you know, I, I just, I see two different kinds of ant colonies that we can build. And, and I'm really scared of the second kind. It's an ancient primitive instinct of ours to build these golems. And I, and I think in a world where we have all this power today, it could be our demise. How do we resolve, I think, what is the tension between so golems are bad. We don't want to cause wars. We don't want ethnocentrism. We don't want racism, bigotry, religious extremism, and so on. But on the other hand, I want to get your take on this, Tim, but I'm not sure if like human beings could just exist in their higher mind 24 hours a day, because I think that there is something fundamental about the experience of living that does sometimes need to tap into that primitive mind that gives us that feeling of belonging, of identity, of community of a healthy kind of us and them, like a, a way to differentiate myself from someone else, or it may be something as simple as a movie club or something like the nation, right? Now, obviously having a nation can turn into a golem. You could have, you know, the kind of toxic nationalism, which leads to war, but it can also bring a diverse set of people together from all sorts of backgrounds to feel a commonality that can transcend them beyond the tribal warring of days past. So how do we harness the parts of the primitive brain that can turn into golems, but seem like they need to be a necessary part of human life for human life to exist, right? Like how do we protect the parts of that primitive brain that need a nation, that need a sense of belonging, that need to feel part of a place of a history 
while preventing it from turning into a golem, right? I don't know if like the higher mind would necessarily even want to think about being in parts of groups at all. I feel like there's part of the primitive mind that needs to be tapped into, but how do we do it in a healthy way? So there's definitely no like total repression of the primitive mind. No human can do that and certainly no society. The goal of a good society, or I think a good human, is not to repress or eradicate the primitive mind, but to have it safely controlled to safe spaces and to areas where it belongs. And even better, maybe to harness it for productivity or for good. There, it's not that there's some problem with the primitive mind. No one wants to lose their limbic system and their, you know, the primitive mind is wonderful. It's why food tastes good. It's why sex is great. It's why all, all these, you know, primal things are a great part of life. It, it's just that this thing can get out of control, right? If someone has an anger problem and they're abusing someone, okay, their, their primitive mind is not, is out of control. If someone has an addiction, their primitive mind has grabbed the reins in their head too much, too great an extent, and they've lost control over it. And the primitive mind has become hooked on something and it's destroying your life. As a society, so if you think about liberal democracies, we're built with the backdrop of thousands of years of human civilizations and how they've succeeded and failed, and just a really deep understanding of human nature. So there was a lot of wisdom in those. And if you think about what, what they are, is the reason that societies are so hard so many societies and, and emperors have had good intentions. We're going to create a set of rules and it's going to be civilized and every, it's going to be fair. And, you know, uh, republics have tried to do it. Emperors have tried to do it. Kings, people, you know, throughout history have had these ideas. And the reason it's hard is because the primitive mind often just completely overwhelms. And that can come in the form of an ambitious leader breaking the rules. Corruption, political corruption is the primitive mind in, the, in leadership taking over and breaking the rules for their own selfish reasons, or violent revolution, either because it's reacting to a primitive mind or because there's just an ambitious leader of a coup that wants to take over. So it's so hard because you have to figure out how to not let the primitive mind totally mess it up. So these rules were built in a, in a modern liberal democracy that were never trying to repress the primitive minds of the country. They were trying to control them with things like term limits and you know voting, uh, and also with laws and prison as a threat, all right? And so police, these things are all trying to, to control it. But there's also the idea of harnessing the primitive mind. The idea behind free markets and why they can be so productive is, you know, I think there's some, there's some great Adam Smith quote where he says something like, the butcher, the baker, uh, they don't provide our dinner out of benevolence. They provide it out of their own self-interest. If we set up the system right, selfish primitive minds will benefit everybody. And so taking this to the larger giant level, the goal of a good society is not that we don't have political golems, just say. And it's certainly not that we don't have healthy kind of golems. Like I mentioned going to a football game, you know, sports fandom is a healthy kind of goal. You know, just patriotism without hardcore nationalism, but just like national pride or local pride, being proud of your town. Being proud of your ethnicity, being proud of your religion and whoever you are, where, you know, if you if you're from, you know, I don't know, India and you live in the U.S., finding other Indian Americans and being proud of that and feeling like one with them. I mean, this is great. Right. So certainly not. to, But even the, the bad kinds of golems, the uh, political tribe or that might form that's bigoted. Right. Or that is based on hating other Americans, just say, or, or you know, whatever these these kind of things that you don't want to have. Those are also inevitable. In a liberal democracy, the goal is to create a system and a set of and the system involves both laws, but also norms, cultural norms that keep them contained. So they can't do what their instinct is to do, which is conquer the whole country. 
And so like America has been pretty damn good at this. Like they're yet to really fall, you know, where a, a single political golem could kind of conquer the country. You had, you have had moments where there's been flare ups, like for example, during the early fifties, you had McCarthyism, which was kind of a super, you know, extreme anti-communist golem kind of gained a ton of power enough to kind of make everyone scared of it, where it could ruin your life if you said the wrong thing. And it, it was instituting un-American policies like loyalty oaths. Um, and getting people fired for having the wrong views. That's all very not American. And the reason is because of Golem that doesn't share American values and is kind of a much more kind of extreme and tribal, got way too much power. And then the good news is the system regained its footing uh, after kind of getting knocked on its heels, regained its footing, and McCarthyism went away. And today you can say you're a communist, you're not going to be fired, right? Those should be warning moments that even the American system, which is built to be really robust against this kind of thing, uh, it's not airtight. Greater societies than ours have completely collapsed. And so we should be very, I think that the thing we should be looking out for is golems that have way too much power. That's a sign, not that that golem is anything special, but that something's wrong with what I would call like the American immune system, the liberal immune system that's supposed to kind of ward off threats like that. And and if golems are getting too much power and they're actually causing way too much damage, then that tells me that something's down, something's wrong with the immune system, which is part of what I do think is happening now. Yeah, loyalty oaths in spirit or in script of yesteryear seem to be making a resurgence on both the right and the left. And I imagine that's probably one of the things that caused you the alarm that led you to write this book. But I think that actually tying in an analogy from outside of the book that I saw you use in a talk once was that of the chef and of cooks. The chef being the person in the kitchen who invents the recipe and the cooks being the one who follow the recipe. And it seems like we have a problem of leadership in our society and around the world where it seems like we have a lot of either intentionally or not either malicious or incompetent bad chefs and bad recipes are spreading through society. I'd love you to share your thoughts on that. That's a basic analogy for two kinds of reasoning. There's like reasoning from first principles and reasoning by analogy. Reasoning from first principles, it sounds straightforward. It's a physics term. You don't assume anything. You, you, you put away all of your existing assumptions and you put down all that baggage and you just have a clean slate and you say, what am I actually observing out in the world? What are the axioms? What, what are things I know for sure? Really know for sure. And that's it. I'm going to now build conclusions based on those things. And this is a great way to do a lot of things like when, when Apple entered the phone industry. They didn't say, okay, well, what's our keyboard going to look like? Let's make it super clicky and Apple-like. And let's, you know, let's do, they said, what, is, what should a mobile device be? What are, the, what are the technologies actually available to us? Those are our axioms here. What actually do people need, you know, regardless of what they're getting currently? And so they started truly original reasoning. And when they got to the top of that tower, there was a conclusion that the phone shouldn't have keyboards. And all this other stuff that they did. And they changed the phone industry, right? And there's so many examples like this in artists and business and investing in thought leadership. If you can, you know, reason from first principles and just put away all the existing, the conventional wisdom and try to just do independent reasoning, it's amazing the kinds of epiphanies you can come up with. So I call this thinking like a chef, which is someone who kind of uses the raw ingredients in the kitchen, experiments with them and writes recipes and makes a lot of mistakes along the way. Chefs fail all the time. It's, it's a great way to you know, come up with a bad recipe is to experiment, but it's also a great way to come up with a totally revolutionary, you know, really new kind of thing. The other kind of reasoning, reasoning by analogy, is basically copying an existing recipe, which is you know, a shortcut that's really useful most of the time. We don't want to always have to reason our way independently through every decision. A lot of this, just copy what's already been done. So we do a lot of copying. 
there was a picture in my uh, the club I was in in college, and they had that from the '60s, and everyone had their hair slicked down to the side with a part. And then the '70s, everyone had this wild hair, right? And it's not a coincidence; they didn't all independently decide that, right? They're copying each other. It was a new recipe for how to look cool, and everyone was copying it. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. We're kind of programmed to be that way. And we shouldn't feel shame about generally copying each other. And think about weddings and how uniform they are. And people walk down the aisle and they give the diamond ring. And then they, not everyone, but like part of being in a society is it's fun to actually just kind of do what's normal. But when it comes to like business decisions or um, thought leadership, or as I said, you know, art, it's actually really a huge advantage if you can do it things the other way. And when we talk about leadership, the best kind of leadership is the kind that can see the, the current world for what it is, ignore conventional wisdom when it's wrong, which it often is, and do what actually makes sense. And the, what you don't want from leaders is, you know, furious reasoning by analogy where they're all copying each other and they're doing whatever they think people think they're supposed to be doing. That's, that means there's no leader, actually. That means they're kind of just the lead follower. They're not actually a leader. Part of what's scary about our current society is it often takes courage in a time, especially a time like ours, it takes extra courage to just kind of to lead when that goes away from conventional wisdom, when that goes away from what the other leaders are doing, you know, they get a huge, massive backlash. It's like, I guess, a general concept that I think reasoning from first principles is important and copying too much is not great. But especially, yeah, right now, I feel like we're seeing a lot of leaders not doing much leading. And first principle seems like the ultimate Gollum poison. You talk in the book about how Gollums form from echo chambers. And when you have Gollums fighting Gollums, let's use as an example, a Gollum on the left and a Gollum on the right, politically, for example, about whatever topic, it could be immigration, racism, police shootings, COVID, name whatever you want. The internal positions of the Gollums become increasingly extreme and calcified, not because they're necessarily the correct positions or even the ones the people within the Golem actually believe, but their positions are tightly held as weapons to fight the other side's Golem. And it seems to me, from what you're saying, Tim, that first principle thinking is like a righteous cancer in the body of a Golem. Is that right? Well, what unites a Golem, right? What's the lifeblood? The thing that gives the Golem its strength and its glue to hold together is, again, not like the science community, not shared values and disagreement, but actually shared beliefs or reverence to or outward expression of shared beliefs. Not necessarily, it doesn't even matter if everyone actually believes it, that everyone is scared to defy it out loud. Because if a shared, just, you know, some holy scripture of ho- holy political scripture, holy religious scripture, whatever it is, if that holy scripture is the lifeblood, then reasoning from first principles, just any form of challenging of that, any form of disagreement will get you kicked out. Like you, yes, you are a cancer to an organism whose lifeblood is conformity. Difference is a cancer, right? Which is when you get this, like these hardcore echo chambers where you know you're in an echo chamber when if everyone's agreeing on something and if you just said, "Eh, I think actually we're wrong about this. I think the other people are right. If you would get an extreme negative reaction to that, uh, you know, you're in the presence of sacred ideas and people who are treating ideas as sacred objects. And that means that people are in Gollum mode. You know, that's the mode we're in when, when we're acting that way. And sometimes we're the ones enforcing it without even realizing it. You know, we can enforce echo chambers on others when we think we're all independent thinking. If there's something that you have a strong negative reaction when someone disagrees with you on it, you're doing that. And so we all do it. It is conformity the way to be cool right now. The only way to kind of stay in the good graces or is independent thinking, independent reasoning, um, disagreement, is that smiled upon? If it is, then I think you're probably part of, you know, you and your friends are in genie mode, and that's good. 
On New Year's Day of this year, you tweeted, quote, a few months ago, I deleted the Twitter app from my phone to limit my Twitter usage to the computer. Now I've become the world's most prolific iOS Safari Twitter user, end quote. And Twitter, in some ways, feels like the ultimate mind skittle. And you and I were kids. I think you're just one year older than me, Tim. You and I were kids just as the internet was getting started, back when it was still called the World Wide Web, not to date us too much. And I feel like the internet promised us the ultimate genie, but eventually social media turned it into the scariest golem we could possibly fashion. (laughs) I challenge anyone to find a scarier golem than what can happen on Twitter. I'm sure you've heard that famous saying, you know, every day there's a protagonist or one main person on Twitter and your goal is to just never be that one person. Because it seems like when someone uh, disturbs the ire of the giant Twitter golem, everything that you've talked about in this discussion, everything you talk about in the book, the scariest parts of the golem all manifest themselves on a place like Twitter. And I just wonder if when a golem can get that large via social media, I guess, how can society progress when golems can form that quickly and that large? Twitter's a a decent metaphor for, like, in general, like, how I think things can go awry. I mean, John Ronson, you know, wrote a great book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Ah, yes. He talks about, um, you know, Twitter started off kind of as a, almost like the culture was the opposite. It was kind of a radical de-shaming place. You could admit your faults, you could admit your flaws, and other people would say, oh, I'm like that too. And people would, like, give you hearts for admitting that you've done something wrong or whatever. That's the work of higher minds. It's a very civilized kind of evolved culture that started off like where people were allowed to be humans. You know, being a flawed human was okay, which of course we all are. So it was basically okay to admit that you are human. And that was uh, that was positive. And then the, he talks about the transition where it, they, people started to realize they could take down bad guys on Twitter. They could actually use Twitter as a cudgel um, to if, you know, if a boss was... Uh, sexually harassing his employees and, you know, before maybe the employee doesn't really have a way to uh, strike back and, and the boss is, is immune because the employee, if they told someone that they would end up fired and whatever. Now the employee could take it to Twitter. There could be kind of um, a productive Twitter mob that could, uh, you know, all together in unison, you know, bring undeniable spotlight on this situation and actually the boss would have to resign or whatever, or be reprimanded or whatever. And so it was this amazing, exhilarating thing. Like we could take down bad guys, like power to the people. Right. But then the problem is that it's not just, you know, higher minds who like that idea, you know, primitive minds, you know, had found their new favorite activity. They were saying, okay, who's next? Because it's super exhilarating to feel like a righteous crusader for the primitive mind. And that feeling of needing to be a righteous crusader, you know, to wanting more and more, you know, well, there's not always a righteous crusade to be fighting. And so you end up a lot of times inventing villains and it becomes, you know, who's the next villain? The entire culture can shift. The balance of power can shift from kind of the higher mind kind of run culture to something that is, I, I see it as like the primitive minds when, when they're there, you know, when they're active, it becomes kind of scary to say the wrong thing, right? Because primitive minds like to enforce conformity. They like to prove their own righteousness by ganging up on someone. And people who aren't like that, who are, you know, who are not super disagreeable, they often just go quiet. And so you have is a lot of that kind of vulnerable energy left Twitter. And what you end up with is it's almost like a bunch of wolves have conquered, you know, and, and are kind of standing on their prize howling together. And that's how I see that, that Twitter is kind of the primitive minds in a lot of ways took over and that became the culture and it swung. And I don't think most people are like that. I think that more people are, you know, into just admitting they're a flawed human and being compassionate. And then there's a whole other big group, probably the biggest group of all, that's just kind of will follow whatever's cool. So when it's cool to be compassionate, they'll be compassionate. When it's not, they won't. And so 
even if very few people are actually kind of really kind of mean bullies and like to ruin people's lives and like to publicly shame, all it takes is a few of them starting to be able to do that. And suddenly the other people who often go quiet and now all the people who are followers start to jump in on that behavior. And before you know it, the entire thing has swung, as I said, like a microcosm of what I kind of worry about in the bigger picture, which is that most Americans are reasonable. Most Americans don't like bullying. Most Americans don't like political extremism, don't want violence and care about fairness and care about truth, right? Most people, if you talk to an individual, but I worry that a small, you know, contingent of people who don't feel like that and don't want that, you know, it's almost like a virus, which is caught on. It's spreading in the larger society. It's become a little bit like Twitter where I feel that there's kind of been a primitive mind flare up across the country, kind of like there was in the McCarthyism days and many other times in history. And I feel like we're in the middle of one of those flare ups right now. But we have a lot more power as a species than we did in 1951. I hope we can kind of get a hold of things. So this can be a blip like McCarthyism and we can get to a better time in three or five years versus this is the beginning of a downslide to a very bad time for a lot of us. We've talked about some of the darker aspects of where society could go during the course of this conversation, but the vast majority of your writing, whether it was the very first essay that introduced me to Wait But Why, which was the essay about the Fermi paradox, or so many of the other essays you've written about how big the universe is or how amazing technology is, whether it's Neuralink, self-driving cars, etc., you talk so often with wonder and appreciation about just how marvelous and in many ways how impossible so much of our modern society feels especially after writing this book, which did force you to go to some dark and difficult places. What is keeping you optimistic today? And what's a note of optimism that you would leave our listeners with? You know, you look at other societies that have slid into darkness, you know, and you think about the hopeful Iranian revolution, which then turned into a brutal, regressive dictatorship or the Bolsheviks or the Maoists or obviously the Nazis. I mean, there's millions of examples of societies that were not the people in them were not different. Most of the people were good. Most of the people were reasonable. Most, many of the people were followers who will do whatever is popular at the time. And then some of the smaller, much smaller number are, are, you know, genuinely want to destroy and want to hurt people, right? Our society has the same thing. It's a little bit, you know, that's part of what's scary, which is that, you know, any society, don't, don't get cocky. Any society can slide into darkness. One thing that makes me optimistic is that those societies didn't have the internet. And it's on one hand, the internet is part of what got us into this mess and got us into this place for sure. It's, it's, it's maybe one of the primary causes of it. On the other hand, to really slide into darkness, you need to create an airtight kind of national goal. I mean, an, air, an airtight echo chamber where it's anyone who dares you. People have to speak in whispers and dark alleys and pass notes to each other. And anyone who speaks up in defiance is um, brutally executed or whatever. That's a society that really can just suddenly the discourse can just shut off like a switch. And without discourse, you know, no one can hear each other think. And the big kind of national brain goes dark and the bad guys can really take over. If you notice, like there's a lot of scary golems right now, but there's a ton of other people that are criticizing them very publicly online. And a lot of the bad things that have happened, the kind of scary movements that have come through. If you notice, like it's not that long before people start to discuss what's happening, figure out what's happening, put labels to it and start to build new cultural values to protect against it. And so I, part of me feels optimistic because I don't, it's just like, it's very hard. It's a little bit hard to stake in control of the society right now. And things can get chaotic. It's also pretty hard for bad guys to truly take over. I, I think it's very difficult. And I, and because I deep down do believe that most people are reasonable and that if bad guys can't inflict too much fear, 
that I think reason prevails. If free speech can still exist, even in pockets, I think goodness prevails. It just like I don't feel that great rooting for uh, stability and prosperity. I would feel maybe even worse if I were rooting for the destruction of the society. I would be like, I don't know how that's going to happen. It seems like there's too, this brain is too connected through the internet to let anything that bad happen. Maybe that's foolish because technology, again, explosive technology is scary. The optimist in me has not yet been convinced that the future is definitely going to be bad. If I had to guess, I would still point to 2035. My guess would be that we look back at today and it was a bad time in a larger picture that's still going up. There's an image at the start of the book of you burrowing toward the center of the earth, representing the difficulty of understanding and mapping out the concepts you explore in it. So if we were to just reuse that metaphor for our listeners' benefit as I wrap us out, Tim, this one conversation feels like putting a shovel in the dirt of the planet that is your book. I don't like to make outlandish sounding proclamations on the show because instinctively I feel that lavishing something with praise in some ways detracts from the accomplishment. But I earnestly believe that this book, What's Our Problem, should be required reading in every American high school. To me, it's that important. So thank you so much for writing it, Tim. And thank you for spending time with us. Really appreciate the kind words. And thanks for having me on. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.